Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Although there were many events taking place this week that has deservedly received attention, one of the events that were celebrated in Israel and the Jewish world was the Hanukkah holiday. Although it's not a biblically authorized celebration, it came into effect about 2,000 years ago, and I believe it is one of the annual celebrations that has gained significance over the years, and particularly in the last century, and particularly in the Western world. But though it may be considered a minor holiday in the sense that it does not have many of the restrictions imposed by other days on the Jewish calendar, it has in my mind several aspects that make it unique, especially in these later generations. First, it is, it is an event that is primarily a happy one, has a length of more than one week, which makes it unusual. And second, and perhaps more important, it occurs at a time when the Western world, primarily a Christian world, is celebrating Christmas and New Year. In a period when there is a huge amount of assimilation, the rate of intermarriage is around 70% and increasing. The celebration of Hanukkah has provided the Jewish people with celebrations which in a sense compete with that of the other major societies, enable the Jewish people to provide an event which is attractive and compelling to its own people, particularly the youth. It's recognized by the major news medias and governments. It, in a sense, matches in an unexpected way the intentions of an original holiday. It's a front in a struggle against assimilation and loss of Jewish identity. It's a war against assimilation fought with unusual tools and weapons. It's fought, a battle fought with candles and holiday gifts and parties. I think it has turned out to be a very efficient form of weaponry. Thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. 
Like many people, I'm the victim of the government's inability to come up with a consistent policy. They keep changing the rules about how long one has to be confined when arriving in the country, or, either, or even whether one has permission to come into the country and so forth. We had relatives coming here for a uh, wedding this week. Uh, they had tickets already, and when they got to the airport, they were told that when they come to Israel, they have to be confined for a specific amount of time, meaning that, that they will miss the wedding. And so was, uh, they were very frustrated. I don't know what they want to do with the tickets. They're not coming. But uh, I, outside of the, the health factor of the covid the inability of many governments, including the Israeli government, to set a policy and be consistent with them has turned out to be a former, former, uh, formerly a curse. For nearly two years now, every world leader has faced a monumental challenge in contending with corona, trying to contain its spread within the country's population. And of course, it's no different for Israel, which has been contending with these new challenges while juggling the least stable political situation in Israel's electoral history. We have a government after four elections. It's a government of very slim majority, and the government is trying to balance itself at the same time balance what's happening with the corona. It's not easy balancing the health and safety of your citizens without their basic freedoms, especially when elections are held four times in a two-year period. While politicians making decisions regarding lockdown clearly have to answer to their own constituents, the political debate for two years is centered around the balance between health and safety and the stagnating economy. Also, the political parties in Israel do not have to answer to their constituents because people run on a party ticket, not as individuals. However, there's been a little mention of, of how much we are alienated our extended family. That That is, the fellow Jews who are our extended family who live outside of Israel, who've been told since the founding of the state that Israel is their home. Israel's poor handling of the pandemic has created a rift now between Israel and the Jews abroad, a rift that Israeli politicians have to own up to first and then try to fix it as soon as possible. Since its inception, the Jews around the world have become familiar with the mantra that's often repeated by Israeli leaders, Israel, the Jewish homeland, come home. We are here at home for every Jew. In the last, just the last few weeks, the new president, Isaac Herzog, shared uh, the following at a Jewish agency event in the United Kingdom. He said, my wife and I have put the issue of relations between the state of Israel and world Jewry as a top item on our presidential priority list, and we intend to invest a lot of time and effort to make sure that all Jews, wherever they are, whatever their domination, whatever they believe in or don't believe in, 
we want them to feel at home in the state of Israel. That's what our prime, our president said, and it makes a lot of sense. However, during these moments of crisis, the state of Israel has to take a reckoning with Jews around the world. And it turns out that a lot of what they said as being the home of Jews around the world is only rhetoric. Just last week, government ministers voted to ban non-citizens from entering Israel for two weeks due with an outbreak of yet another corona mutation. Our Justice Minister, Gidon Saar, spoke out against the new restrictions, citing their harshness for arriving Israelis and putting yet another stop to tourism, noting that such measures have significant economic costs at a time when we are on a good economic path, unquote. But at the same time, it, it really touches upon of human feelings, families that want to get together. Yet, we have seen no mention by any of these uh, politicians about the impact that shutting Israel's doors continues to have on our, on our brethren, particularly when they're lumped together with every other tourist that wants to visit. There are a lot of people who have to be here for particular reasons, like my family and a wedding. The very Jews who show up outside of Israel for rallies, who write letters to their congressmen, they stand up to anti-Semitism, they donate to Israel, they visit Israel, they pray for Israel, some even have homes in Israel, and come to Israel several times a year, and they have abruptly been shut out. Now, the closures in general have been frequent and inconsistent with little in the way of explanation, accompanied by confusing bureaucratic and sadly profound lack of empathy. But the blanket ban on what they call foreigners with no distinctions, whether it's relatives or family or so forth, it's really a slap in the face to everyone that has believed in the special status, status of Israel for the Jewish people. Israel is a special place for the Jewish people. It isn't just that loyal, close members of families have been turned away in great numbers. Often they've been turned away at the airport in a very not nice way. It's not a, a lot of people who've been forced to wait for, to bury someone in Israel, go to a wedding, and so forth. And uh, it's it's also it's not just the tax-paying homeowners who have not been able to enter their own apartments in Israel for up to two years so far. What it really is, and that's what's aggravating. Is the insult that already open wounded countless exceptions are made for prominent individuals who fit a political economic agenda. For example, the, the country was very upset when the prime minister's family went away on vacation while being told by the prime minister that we shouldn't travel away on vacation. Of course, what will happen if it, when the wife, his wife and children come back, will they be required to stay in a hotel for a week or ten days like other pe other people have been? 
As a matter of fact, there was a headline in Newsweek magazine last week pointing this out. There's a Miss Universe country a contest here in Israel in a lot. Women are coming from 80 countries around the world, and they were all allowed exemptions to the attend the event in a lot next week. In other words, they had no problem getting into the country for a beauty pageant. So this is the message, unfortunately, Israel sending to the world jury. Now, the Israeli officials continue to find themselves in uncharted waters. The COVID is, is something new that hasn't been around before. The same is true in all the other countries. We see also in the United States where they keep changing the rules. And, uh, however, there is something different about Israel, and I want to point that out. Israel is a family. And those familiar relationships must be reciprocal. Israeli officials continue to find themselves not knowing what they're doing, but they need to be reminded of the countless times when Israeli officials have asked world Jewry to stand with Israel because we are one family. And if we are one family, it has to go into every area of relationships. Israelis' leaders now are in a position where they must think long and hard about steps that they need to take to repair that relationship that they've been talking about since 1948. They repeated this relationship scheme when they talk about Israel being in danger and so forth, and when they need money. But we are a family means we have a familiar relationship. We have to contend with corona and closures, apparently for some time to come. There seems to be no uh, no horizon, no hope over the horizon in the meantime. But we in Israel, the government Israel, has, con has to contend with these problems together with world jury and do it with grace, with sensitivity, with compassion, and, and the kind of communication was, one has, not when dealing with strangers, but the kind of things that happen among family members. If we keep saying we are one family, and indeed I believe, believe, believe we are one family, we have to treat other members of the family as we want them to treat us. This is a very difficult situation, but at the moment our government is not showing enough sensitivity. I'll be back after the break. Hi, 
everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show. Pull up a chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about how the Americans misunderstand the Palestinian Arabs. This fall, six Palestinian terrorists escaped from an Israeli prison. While the attention was focused on recapturing the prisoners, what was missed was an opportunity to gain some deeper insights into what contemporary Palestinian Arab society thinks about the conflict and about their people who murder civilians for what they consider a greater purpose. Palestinians profoundly believe in the justice of their cause and the right to all the land from the river to the sea. They are zealous about maintaining the right of every descendant of the refugees to return to Israel. To Israelis across the political spectrum, except for the small number who want a binational state, This is a complete non-starter, as it would lead to the demographic destruction of the Jewish state and the exodus of the remaining Jews who would fear for their lives. Over time, attitudes can change and compromises can be made. However, today's Palestinian viewpoint should not be underestimated and it should be understood. The truth of the matter is that the Palestinians have simply not prepared their people for for the painful compromises needed to accept a Jewish state without a right of return and to end the conflict with Israel. This will this is will be especially difficult because progressive American advocates defend the Palestinian demands with a zeal akin to an evangelical religion, with the Israelis as the devil and the Palestinians as perpetual victims. For these people, it's all about the settlements. It's easier to portray Israel as the, as the bully Avoiding the inconvenient truth that for too many Palestinians, the long-term objective is to end the Jewish step one step Jewish state one step at a time. President Biden says a two-state solution the only path for Israelis and Palestinians. But is that a two-state solution as America and most Israelis see it? Or does it mean something very different the way Palestinians see it? Pressuring Israel to publicly accept America's interpretation of two states 
while not acknowledging that the Palestinians have a completely different goal, is the prelude to a terrible mistake. In actuality, the Oslo agreements do not demand a two-state solution. Two states are not mentioned in the Oslo Accords. Oslo allows Israel and the Palestinians to negotiate for one, two, three, even more states, even a confederation. Whatever is agreed upon by the parties between Israel and the Palestinians. This is according to Alan Baker, one of the Israeli lawyers negotiating the Oslo Accords. The Biden administration's reported behind-the-scenes effort to urge the Palestinians to move towards a unity government, hoping this would yield some stability for the Palestinian Authority through economic rehabilitation, misses the point. The U.S. thinks Abbas is a legitimate leader, but the Palestinian people themselves have no confidence in Abbas because of endemic corruption and no elections for the last 14 years nor on the horizon. Abbas is deeply unpopular Palestinian people and he's at his lowest point now. He's made many mistakes, including recanting on his promise for elections. He did this because polls showed that it's Hamas, his rival, would win the election. So instead of focusing on the sensationalism of the escape, the more instructive story was the Palestinian leadership's response to the escape of these terrorists and the capture of the terrorists several weeks ago. There were these people who escaped from the jail were cold-blooded killers targeting civilians with the end goal to destroy the Jewish state. Some of them belonged to the Islamic groups, others belonged to the Palestinian Authority, and all of them were simply killers. They were criminals, and the, oh, and the Palestinian Authority eulogized these terrorists as martyrs. Uh, the PLO referred to the terrorists who escaped as the best Palestinian youth who sacrificed their lives for the sake of their homeland. The moderate leaders referred to the, uh, to the killers of prisoners of war. Freedom fighters, they were not. The, uh, the Israeli government, according to the PLO, by capturing the escapees, bears full responsibility for these war crimes and arresting them. A doctor and not Burko, an expert on Palestinian terrorists, said the Palestinian prisons, Israeli jails, don't express express remorse. There's no potential of rehabilitate, rehabilitating them because they didn't do anything wrong or forbidden their own perspective. This, their society empowers them for what they did. They didn't see being jailed as a blow to their status, as criminals prisoners do. They saw their enjailment as something that reinforces their status and the ideas of their society. So it's interesting because going to jail doesn't make you a criminal in the eyes of the Palestinian Authority. It makes you a criminal. So the problem is many decisions in the Middle East are based on a Western perspective that undermines our ability to achieve results 
We project how we think and act with Middle East societies, which are not Western societies. They are tribal and they are clan-oriented. The same words heard by Israelis and Palestinians are understood differently. And what Palestinians say in English to, to everybody else and Arabic to each other is often different between night and day. The Arabic language can have four different meanings for one word, allows an ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity and leads to a misunderstanding with Americans and Israelis whose international agreements are meant to be clearly understood by each party. They are not understood by the Palestinians. So what we end up with is misconceived analysis and misconceived decision. Whether we are talking about how best to give humanitarian aid to Gaza uh, or a two-state solutions or how Palestinians respond to American appeasement, we expect Palestinian leadership and society to interpret our, the Western actions as the Americans and the Westerners would. Like much of the Middle East, Palestinians think collectively as tribes and clans. They are not attached to nation states introduced into this region over a hundred years ago by European colonial powers. Secular in a Muslim world means something very different. The, the Palestinian thought is not secular in the Western sense, as misunderstood by the American administrations. The, the, the secular PLO, Palestinian Authority, and Fatah are profoundly influenced by Islam, not by Western thinking. And it's true of the lives of most Palestinians. Minimizing the religious dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict explains why presidents of both U.S. parties for the last half century have offered peace plans have failed time and again. The American intention now to reopen the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem or find a way around American law called Taylor Force to transform funds to support the Palestinian Authority financially misreads the situation will have the unintended consequence of hardening Palestinian positions. The Taylor Force Act pro pro prohibits funding of the Palestinian Authority that supports terrorism. A new bill submitted by the progressive members of Congress highlights either naivete based on projecting a Western perspective on the Palestinians or perhaps real animosity to Israel. This new law, this new bill in the U.S. Congress repeats the bromides of the Israeli occupation being the source of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, conflict without mentioning the role of the Palestinians themselves. The Americans simply do not understand the Palestinian mind. And, so, and that is true of the activists in the Biden administration. That is the problem. The West does not understand the thinking of the Palestinians and the thinking of the Middle East, and he interpret words with totally different meanings. See, it's time for America to see Palestinians as they are, not as their progressive supporters in the Congress romanticize them. <clears throat> if you want to make any progress or peace in the Middle East, uh, you, it, take, it begins with having people begin to understand the way the mind of the Middle Eastern person works. 
as long as you think that what what you the way you think is the way they think, we're never going to get anywhere near resolving the problem. The uh, it, it, we have to understand that the, as I always say, the Middle East is not the Middle East. Words don't mean the same thing, and that is the biggest problem with the American attitude to our section of the world. I'll be back after the break. Are you interested in transforming your life, drawing closer to the Creator, and uncovering the deeper meanings and hidden treasures in the Hebrew Bible? Then join me, Rav Yitzhak Michelson, and me, William Hall, on the Science of Kabbalah, where we are seeking to narrow the gap between what we understand of our physical and spiritual worlds. So make sure to tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Israel Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, here on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There is a subject which ordinarily would be under the radar... But I think it's too important, and I want to mention it now because you don't see anything in the papers about it. Actually, in the Israeli papers, it appeared on one of the very back pages. And that is the subject of a new U.S.-backed water for energy agreement between Israel and Jordan, which is a significant contribution to the political stability of this region also to Jordan's acute water shortage and to pushing forward the regional climate change. The agreement is evidence of a renewed dialogue between political leadership in Jordan and Israel, a result most likely made possible by the political political changes that have occurred in the region since the normalization of the ties with two Gulf states, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, and the emergence of the new Israeli government several months ago. The deal is premised on the creation of a balanced dependence, that is, Israel's dependence on Jordan in importing solar energy and Jordan's dependence on Israel in importing desalinated water, seawater. Purchasing solar power from Jordan where the availability of renewable energy is greater and land and labor costs are lower may indeed be the most cost-effective way for Israel to meet its nationally determined contribution, known as NDC, at least as far as renewable energy is concerned. In fact, Israel has set its share of renewable energy generation by the year 2030 as 30%, 
a goal that seems very ambitious considering that in 2020 alone, it only accounted for slightly more than 6%. Now, you have to look at the facts on the ground. Israel has a limited area available for large-scale energy installation. The Negev, the southern part of Israel, which looks like a vast desert area, is actually unavailable for this purpose. Why? Due to the fact that half of it, half of the Negev, is a military training ground, while the other half of the Negev is declared a natural reserve and covering the roofs of housing with solar panels does not seem to be enough to achieve this goal. For Jordan, the cost of desalinated water conveyed from the Mediterranean Sea to the most populated region of Jordan, which is the capital of Amman, will be relatively less expensive than the alternative of desalinating water on the Jordanian coast of the Red Sea because of the shorter distance from the Mediterranean. This deal is also expected to have some political gains, and that is really quite important. The construction of a water desalination plant in Israel to supply water to Jordan will will mitigate the kingdom's water crisis. In other words, it has a terrible water crisis, and this will do much to reduce that crisis. It's made even worse than elsewhere by climate change and by population growth, intensified water use in that uh, um, urban area, and increased competition for water across borders. At the same time, addressing water scarcity in Jordan is a strategic objective for Israel since Jordanian water shortages pose an increasing threat to national security and stability in its immediate vicinity. In other words, it pays for Israel to help Jordan to become more stable. These are very important, and one even say noble goals, and meeting them will increase political and economic stability in this region of the Middle East, which is really important. Regrettable, however, there's someone missing in this, and that is the Palestinians. The short distances between the possible routes of the solar power grid from Jordan to Israel and the water conveyor from Israel back to Jordan from the Mediterranean and to the area known as the West Bank make the connection relatively simple and inexpensive. Doing so, we remove the water file from what is otherwise a very complex Israeli-Palestinian conflict waiting to be resolved. The Jordan-Israel United Arab Emirates company called Masdar, M-A-S-D-A-R, signed an agreement several weeks ago that will likely take a decade to become operational. The addition of the Palestinian component would therefore still be possible, 
and is unlikely to pose significant technical and administrative complexities to the regional project. Yet, it could pave the way for greater European Union involvement in in revamping the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, if there is one, and EU support for regional integration on climate and water issues in the Middle East. This, this would be in uh, keeping in line with the ambitious goal of externalizing the EU's Green Deal beyond its borders. In other words, when we talk about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and all the regional conflicts here, most of us have a tendency not to think of that aspect of the, of the conflict related to water. Water is a prime necessity here in the Middle East. Jordan needs the water, and Israel is located on the Mediterranean and can can supply desalinated water. So conducting a feasibility study to connect to the Jordanian-Palestinian-Israel solar electric grid and and attach it to Europe would signal Europe's interest in supporting a concrete project and certainly could positively influence the construction of the grid. In other words, we can provide water, uh, desalinated water, not only to Jordan, but also connect the whole thing to the European, European Union grid. This new Israeli government has indicated that it wants to open a new page in its relations with the European Union. While the ideas for a Palestinian economic renaissance, which were raised by Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, do not amount to a political horizon for the Palestinians, these ideas and initiatives like the new agreement signed several weeks ago to, in other words, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's a U.S.-backed water for energy agreement between Israel and Jordan. So we provide Jordan with water, they provide Israel with energy. So this new agreement, which was assigned just several weeks ago, can provide the economic platform which fortified with sufficient political ingredients could reopen a high-level political dialogue between Jerusalem and and Brussels. In other words, by combining this this deal between Israel and Jordan can also improve our relationship with the European Union. Now, it's interesting, again, as I said at the beginning, this uh, this deal was signed uh, between Israel and in jo- and Jordan, and uh, it, the the um, it, it's part of an overall picture of that Israel has of normalizing its relationships with this entire area. Something you could not even have imagined as recently and as five years ago. The fact that we have relationships now with Bahrain and the United Emirates, 
And the fact that there is a new Israeli government that, that is looking forward to do these things is a whole new uh, future, a whole new horizon for the Middle East. The problem, of course, remains that the uh, the age-old hostility here in the Middle East, which is really, as I understand it, primarily based on a religion, is something that's not going to be going away, going to go away too soon, if at all. So water and the supplying of water to Jordan and energy uh, to Israel may in some way, hopefully and prayerfully, make up for the some of the religious conflict that's go <laughs> that's been going on for thousands of years. So whether whether uh, sunshine and water can somehow uh, eliminate or submerge or uh, limit religious conflict is something of interest. Thanks again for listening, Jay Shapiro. Until next time, signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.